0: So this evening I'd like to speak about divine respect, divine respect. When we each took our first steps onto this path, maybe some of you can still remember, and some of you, it's not that long ago, but for some of us it was way long ago. (laughs) This path called our spiritual journey, when we first took our steps on it, I don't know about you, but I remember those early days when I wanted to just be more peaceful. And I came to some practice I could do. This was the first one that really pulled me into it, and I felt right at home, like I had been here before. But the first thoughts I had about joining a path like this was to really open my heart and my mind. And what I wanted to open was all those places where I could feel bliss, and happiness, and peace. And of course I didn't have in mind at all that you know, I would open to the other part of it. And of course I wanted to open fully to all of life. And it meant opening to it all, not just to the bliss and the peace and the pleasant experiences and all of that. I wanted to know the truth of life. That was also true. I wanted to know it experientially. Not from a book, not because somebody else said so, even if that somebody else was really a great person, like the Buddha or Jesus. But I wanted to understand it for myself. So perhaps like some of you, you didn't realize that coming to a path like this with a, what I thought was the purest intention I could have had during that time meant that I would have to open to very painful parts of myself and that's what we do on this path it included seeing and experiencing a lot of vulnerable places in my heart and it still does luckily there are the tools, the skill sets that I've learned along the way are a little bit stronger, and I have more variation of them depending on what the situation is. But I'm able to see and experience more clearly, and um, there's more of a of an understanding and of a, a relationship of, of skillfulness to what comes to me from inside what comes to me from outside so it didn't take long to understand that there was one skill set that was really important on the path and that was the skill set of compassion and that's what i like to speak about this evening in terms of divine respect compassion and highlight some of the terrain that we all go through It's universal. It's When I tell my story, or anybody up here tells their story about what they've gone through on the spiritual path, you can relate to it because you see that similar things, even though they vary in various details, similar things have happened to you in your life. So when we're supported by the silence and this great lessening of distraction, at a place like this, the sense of seclusion in ourselves, even within a group, and the stillness that we have, we are able to see more clearly. We're able to really face things that we don't face in our daily lives. We see ways that we respond, react to our own uh, minds and hearts. Mostly that's what we're reacting to, what goes on in our own minds and hearts. So there's this ability to see and know ourselves with this mindful awareness that we're doing in a greater way. And, um, you know, like, I I forget who said this, but it's not all good news, you know. Understanding oneself more deeply is not always enjoyable. There's, There's always a lot to it that you want to close down to or run away from, or you know, sometimes I wonder myself, do I want to go in that hall again? You know, Or do that walking practice again, where it gets so quiet inside that I can see things that I never saw before. So it's said, it said that mindfulness is like a light that illuminates and clarifies. Very difficult and uncomfortable states of mind are drawn out of hiding in this light of mindfulness. It's like we open closet doors that are filled with things we've just kind of stuffed in there and it all tumbles out. Or we take the flashlight up to the attic or to the basement and we see what we've stuffed aside and not really examined very well. The weaknesses, the vulnerabilities, start calling to our, our attention. So oftentimes we don't want to feel them, of course or we have to kind of modulate how we go through that particular terrain. And that's a lot of what we need to do. A lot of the parts of um, the wisdom part of our mind needs to understand how to balance ourselves as we go through this practice. We want to, when we come to a difficult place in ourselves, it's a lot of times why we run back to the breath. (laughs) because it's so hard to feel what we're opening to. We kind of get rid of, that, of those experiences by coming back to something more comfortable. And sometimes we do need to do that, of course, because maybe we're overwhelmed or that's the balance that we need in that moment. But when we see that we're just kind of pushing, resisting things all the time, we, we do grow the courage to say, let me be with this, let the mind and heart open to this now, not run away from it, not make up a story of why we need to run away and justify that, but to be with how things are. So it's said that compassion is a kind of love that's courageous. It's You know how love draws you to something? and it takes courage to be with what you're drawn to when you find out it's harder than we thought. So it's a kind of love and courage together. This is compassion. I, um, as many of you probably already know, that word courage is derived from the Latin root cor, c-o-r, which means heart, or the core of things, c-o-r-e. It means the heart. And so it's kind of like opening to the truth of life with your heart, with your courage. So that means that we're able to really experience and see the vulnerabilities that we're facing. Not just kind of name them, but to really feel them. Not to kind of see them from afar and call out its name or be able to say, oh, that's recognizable but to really come close to it and kind of let the attention touch it with that kind of courage called compassion. Not to think about it psychologically, or to philosophize about it, or even to dharmatize. We can can put things aside by dharmatizing a lot, by saying, oh, just let go, or oh, that was in the past, now can we just be present? It's a way of resisting being with things sometimes. So we're able to face and feel with our hearts with the kind of courage and, and kindness that is love. And this is no small thing to be able to do that. Without this quality, the deep habits of turning away and closing down, or Um, overlaying it with a veneer of some kind of justification of why we do that, striking out at what's difficult to face. These are all things that happen in in the terrain of the truth of life and and even compassion. So strong patterns run our lives, not allowing us any room for choice, but just to live in those limited patterns of life and not breaking free from them, unless we can really see the power and use the power of compassion in our lives. So I looked up the word compassion in the etymological dictionary, and it broke it down again from its... this word from its Latin origins. And it's interesting what it came up with. I had seen this before long ago when I looked it up. around when I gave a similar talk during Easter time. And uh, it comes from these two words, calm, C-O-M, which means together, and passion, which surprisingly meant suffering, means suffering. So together with suffering. Compassion means bringing together, like the heart, with suffering. So passion in this sense doesn't mean that excited, uh, way of living one's life, uh, which when you do that all the time, that's suffering. <laughs> but it's this bringing together the heart to the suffering of life. This is what compassion means etymologically. It is one of the most beautiful, powerful, and mysterious feelings a human being can experience in life when we feel this compassion, because when we see that it's so beautiful, and it's even more beautiful when we see it coming together with something that's deeply painful. In our own hearts, or we see some pain, or feel some pain outside of us, or connect with some pain outside of us. In our families, in our communities, with our loved ones. With life in general, with how life is in this day and age. It's a quality that engenders deep connection, deep empathy between beings. When, when we can feel what we feel truthfully and know that this is how it is. This is a universal feeling. This isn't just my feeling. It's how people all over the world feel when they're sad, when they're angry, when they feel jealousy, or when they feel insecurity. This is the way they feel. And some we watch ourselves, and we see, and this is the way one acts sometimes out of confusion from that. So it's a deep, this deep connection with our own hearts allows us a deeper connection with others, and we're, we we can become more understanding in ways that we haven't been before. So, in some circles, this is called divine respect when, you know, just looking up on... Nowadays you can Google anything to to find anything. So just, I thought, oh, I'm going to put something new in my compassion talk. So I just Googled this compassion and found divine respect. And it's something that I really feel that I have because it's respect for the pain. It's respect for the suffering of the world instead of turning away from it it's like standing up to it with, with a stance of feeling respectful in your heart it's that kind of respect that you have when you bow down to something when you can bow to suffering and say this is how it is in life and it's not because I read about it it's because I know it from my own experience. I love this poem by Izumi Shikibu. Um, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. That gives me the, in Hawaii we call it chicken skin, it gives me the chills just now. Divine respect. So, how many of you are parents or around parenting children, even if they're not your own, just around them? Uh-huh. Almost every single one of us, and you know children, grandchildren. I have four children, they're now all adults, and um, the youngest is 33 this year, and the oldest is 45 and five grandchildren. And so, it's a lot of being hit around. Like somebody said, I feel like, you know, life or me or this group is like in a rock tumbler. You know, where we're tumbling around and we're kind of shaving off each other's hard edges, where the Dharma is, and kind of being together. and It's like that in families, too. So I feel like that, you know, of course having raised these children and their grandchildren now and then during the course of my own spiritual journey there are so many ways which, you know, if you don't have a teacher that admonishes you you don't have a complete you know, grouping of teachers I can't (laughs) admonish anybody so I can't can't be a complete teacher I've got to have somebody else to do that but <laughs> <laughs> says things that are open your heart with laughter, and, and then you let it in that way. So there are times when my life was consumed by raising the children and um, and being a mother, and you know all the things that come with that, all the responsibilities of that. And, not knowing sometimes in my own life whether I could pay the bills and have food and, you know, send them send to college, which two of them got through with my help and, and the other two on their own. But I did take time out for spiritual renewal during my time of raising children and... Um, and having a job and doing all the community things. And that really helped, going to retreats on my own and reconnecting with my highest aspirations, beyond raising a family, beyond having, you know, a partnership, just having my own aspirations, uh, spiritual aspirations, important to me. So all this time, I couldn't uh, deny that having this divine respect, compassion through my life, family life, having my time, my my role in community, and as a partner, etc., needed to really work on compassion a lot. So with that, we all have felt compassion in one way, depth, moment, many moments, or another. And when we do feel that, I know that you can't deny, you feel open-hearted when it happens. Um, You could be in the midst of something really painful, or at the end of it, or even at the beginning of it, and you feel like all of a sudden, in the deepest pain, (coughs) the heart can't do anything but crack open. It, It just has to, in order to really face what's going on. So that's when we're really connected with ourselves and with others. This unconditional caring flows from us, really spontaneously. We're no longer defended, we're no longer seeing our point of view, but we see things more universally in those moments. And I I feel a sense of that my, my life is really whole, where I feel um, yeah, no part of me left out where I feel the wholeness of life where there's not like something missing but there's something that's overflowing in in its goodness and it's not really me it's just you know, something some kind of grace that's come to the rescue Um, so we feel a sense for me, I feel that it's sacred. You know, it's just like it was a blessing that I couldn't do it by myself. But somehow, I gave up. Some, somebody I told here, I was really talking to myself. I said, give up all hope. And that's when something will come through, just for yourself. doesn't matter about anything else around you, but just for yourself, you know, you can just open and give up any kind of clinging or wanting, but just be with your own individual aspiration of wholeness, of sacredness, of feeling confident <coughs> that you can experience something beyond the pain of life. So, in some mysterious way. I really know that compassion can make us complete as a human being because we can open to all of life instead of closing down, or turning away, or striking out at, or feeling that we're inept and and not really recognizing or acknowledging that we have greater strength. So it gives us that kind of meaning and purpose to our lives. that we can really help ourselves and help others. One time I asked Manindraji when I was really young, in my twenties, and he first came into my life, and I said, what is the purpose of my life, anyway? And he's, he, you know, I was, at that, at that point I had three children, yeah, I had three children then. And I said, what's the purpose of my life? I was just, you know, Busy just take, trying to take care of them and, and doing retreats in between. And, and um, there was a time I couldn't go to retreats because I was so busy with household life. And so when came to Maui and he would do retreats there, of course I would organize them. I would organize and I would cook and I'd be the manager and the registrar and <laughs> house, everything, you know. And uh, I kind of really started from the bottom up. Um, I remember sleeping in the Maui kitchen with those huge cockroaches crawling over me because there was food around, you know. And, uh, but that's, that's how much I really wanted the Dharma. And the would say, um, when Mohammed can't go to the mountain, then the mountain goes to Mohammed. He say, why did you come here? You know, this is so hard for you to come to. And he would say, well... You wanted the dharma, so the mountain comes to Mohammed. <laughs> so, it's, it has meaning and purpose to our lives. When Manigra said, you're here, your purpose in life is to develop wisdom and compassion. That is your purpose as a human being, to develop wisdom and compassion. And I had forgotten about that till I picked up an old journal many years ago, and I, and I read that back to myself. We have this feeling of a completeness inside when we do that. Um, we know we're developing wisdom, but we have to develop the compassion in order to get to the wisdom. So it's this inner wealth, and it's just something that no one can take away from us. No, it's on our deathbed. Everything, all of our loved ones can be taken away. All of whatever we think our our material wealth is can be taken away. Our bodies. But that inner wealth of wisdom and compassion goes with us. It's, a, it's kind of like our spiritual potential inheritance. But it's also what we can take with us. It's... It's our karma when we develop it. Karma going forth, going forward. So I want to connect this strength of compassion to the Four Noble Truths, with the Four Noble Truths. In the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths, and he started with the reality of what we're all faced with as human beings. So to some people, the first of these four noble truths can sound very pessimistic. But the Buddha was a realist, and he he saw life as it is, and he talked about life as it is. Without he didn't pull any punches. You know, really uh, said it like it like it is about life. The first noble truth in ancient Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were first translated in is called dukkha-satcha. Dukkha means suffering, and satcha means truth. And so, this first noble truth is sometimes wrongly interpreted as life is suffering. So, you know, what a way to invite people to the dharma not everybody. <laughs> but when you see the, the real meaning of that, when you know the real meaning of that, I think we can all agree. The real meaning of that those two words, dukkha sacha, is there is the truth of suffering. So what the Buddha is saying is let's not deny it because that's what's happening mostly, this ignorance, this ignoring the truth of suffering. Always running after where it might be more comfortable for us, more pleasurable. So this first noble truth there is a truth of suffering, to me it was, in and of itself, permission to be human. To be a human being with all my warts and, uh, you know, not being perfect. And that really was right on for me. I felt like, okay, this is really my path. Where somebody can say, there is the truth of suffering, and I can be who I am, just perfectly human. I have my excuses, of course, but, you know, I'm going to work on seeing if I can develop more wholesome states, more skillful ways of being. So it's not to be in denial about that. The second noble truth is there is a cause. And the third noble truth is there is an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to the end of suffering, and that path is the Eightfold Noble Path. But just today, I'm talking about the First Noble Truth, Dukkha sacha. Throughout his life, the Buddha taught that this quality of compassion greatly supports us on this path, because if we didn't have compassion, we wouldn't be able to kind of open to that truth of suffering. It's a vitally important role in this path. It said that there are two wings of the Dharma. Very important to remember why Manindra gave me that response. And the two wings are compassion and wisdom. And it said that without these two wings together, in both the equal strength, the bird of of, uh, liberation would not be able to really fly freely. Without the development of compassion, wisdom can be just an intellectual experience. We can read all we want from all the texts, uh, all the sacred uh, suttas that that are uh, present. And we can give perfect sound bites of the Buddha's teaching. And that wouldn't be enough to really open to the truth of suffering. You really have to have the experience of that opening. And it takes compassion to be able to do that. And without wisdom, compassion can devolve into pity or grief, You know, where we're drowning in the suffering. We need wisdom to keep us kind of buoyant and know our balance. It takes that balance, too, of wisdom and compassion to really be able to stay afloat in the sea of humanity and really know it deeply. So we can devolve into a pity or a grief that's never-ending and never-healing. We need this courage of, of love, compassion, wisdom, all of that put together in order to face what we need to face as a human being, face the vulnerabilities, the humiliations. They say this path is one humiliation after another, if we're really seeing it clearly. But it makes us humble. A lot of what we need is that humility. And so it continues, that with compassion it helps us to develop wisdom. From wisdom, very very spontaneously comes more compassion. And with that greater depth and strength of compassion comes more wisdom. And so the cycle goes, one making the other more strong. So in our practice here together, we see for ourselves how that happens. We come to greater and greater depths through the combination of these two. This is a poem I love by Khalil Gibran. And it's about how we kind of need to break open sometimes to really understand the truth of life. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so you must know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy." So we think of that, you know, oh, how in awe and how in wonder we can be of the joy and the beauty of this world. But the pain of this world is also important to open to and bring us to those places of awe and release as well. Because we live in this electronic age, the frequency and intensity of knowing what's going on is with us in greatly all the time. It's pretty much in our face. We deal with things happening on the global level and on the community level so quickly. And I, all I have to do is press a button on my computer and I know it's happening in my community I get the Maui news just like that and then another button I get the New York Times and the, the main news of the day and all around what we see are places where people are suffering mostly it's kind of why I like to read the Maui news, it tells about happy events of the So <laughs> it's so relieving so if we can stay present with what's really happening and face the reality of how things are, we see and hear more about the shifting and changing planet that we're living on. I mean, this planet is alive, just like any human being. And it's amazing how much compassion, we if we could learn to have compassion for our Mother Earth as a living human being, just as we do our our loved ones, our children, our grandchildren. I think this is what we need to learn also, to see our our Mother Earth as a, a living being, to have compassion for what's happening here, the melting glaciers and icebergs, the changing ocean currents, probably because of that. We were just in um, Mount Rainier, as I told you in my earlier talk, and. From one of the forest rangers there, we learned that the glaciers that are all around Mount Rainier, I think 30-plus glaciers, that they've never seen them melting so fast in all history as they are now. And I, I was wondering because the glacial rivers were so fast and furious that we hiked along on the trails. So the hurricanes, the tsunamis and earthquakes and how that affects human life the animals and creatures on earth, all of life is being affected. The rain forest is being chopped down. It's one of the reasons why we among others, Steve and I among others, are planting a lot of trees. Just 400 trees were planted out here in an in a opening in the forest that they made that they're going to build kutis in or little cottages in for practice. So in our land, too, how many trees have we planted there now? Maybe a couple thousand trees. Some are small, but yeah. So, apart from that, what's happening to our Mother Earth, there are worldwide religious wars, social, political, cultural, and racial inequities all over the place. disparity, struggle with people, of people on all sides of the fences. And so everybody equally, you know, I'm not taking sides with anyone for anyone. There's hunger and lack of basic needs, and yet in some countries like ours, there's so much waste. And so we're, you know, we're perplexed. What do we do? So we're all trying to be open to all of this now. And it takes a lot of compassion. It takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. Not closing down, not backing away from, from all of this. Not just the human-to-human experiences, but also in, on, more on a global level, on a cultural level. So, of course, there are emotional tsunamis happening in our own families. our own communities. We can't ignore that. And that's what we carry on this cushion when we come here and we sit in this quietness. We become more connected and honest with ourselves. It's hard to see ourselves in the light of of mindfulness. Manindra used to say, you can't hide from that light, can't hide anything. So we see elements of fear and anger Attachments to our own viewpoints of how we think it should be for, you know, ourselves, or our families, or how we think it should be for this place, or for the world. Confusion, judging, helplessness. I feel a lot of helplessness. Guilt, resentment. So and right there is where we can remember to bring that tender-hearted care of compassion. When we don't understand what we're doing, here even, I mean much more in life, or much in life, we don't understand sometimes, why is this happening? But here on our cushion, we don't know, what are we doing here sometimes? Can we bring compassion to that very place where we feel confused, or not up to the task of opening our hearts? So right there, where we can just take an out-breath, a good in-breath, and feed ourselves in an out-breath, and say, Okay, just being with this as it is, I can't even name it. I don't even know what to name this dukkha. Sometimes I just call it dukkha, because I don't know what to name it. This is dukkha. This is just dukkha. Or sometimes, because I don't even want to go and make a concept out of it, I just say, uh. Because <laughs> I can't say anything else. I can just say kind of a syllable. Uh, uh, or ow. <laughs> so, with our rational minds, we know these patterns that we're seeing things as they are, are beneficial to us. They're not harmful to us. By being able to see these patterns, it's helpful because at least we're kind of um, delusion is not there or it's there in, in a weaker way. And maybe greed and hatred are still there, but delusion is not there because mindfulness is there. And this is being seen much more clearly. So with the practice, what we're doing here is we're learning to be really honest with ourselves, able to touch parts of ourselves we're not proud of. I mean, sometimes it's just kind of one blow after another, like, Ooh, I don't like seeing that. Ooh, I feel ashamed of that. You know, of what I did, or what I said, or how I was, or how I wasn't open. and. Um, it's just like one blow after another, like somebody said, one assault after another. But to be able to touch those parts of ourselves, that feels like it's really skillful. It's really wholesome. It's really... I feel that sense of courage inside of me, and that sense of honesty, and that ability to say, I can open to this even if it's just for a moment. Just touch it. Sometimes I tell myself when it's really hard, just touch it, that's all. Just a moment, and then you can pull away. I remember lots of times like that when I was in Burma. Oh, awful, the heat. And I was wearing robes one time, and I ordained temporarily. And I was wearing these robes that were polyester. And it's like, what was I thinking? you know? To know? <laughs> Do this, and so I was sweating bullets, and then you know, this really hard dukkha came upon my practice, and it was like I really, I, I, um. I sweat my butt off, literally. I can't go without a butt. i walked so much. I did so much walking, meditation. I sat, everything sweat off of me. Like, I wore a size like two when I got home. (laughs) So, it was like one thing after another. And I would have to say to myself, remind myself, just touch it, just touch it, just a moment, you know. And I would just let my mind and heart feel that moment, just just like that. And then I could just be with it more, and just be with it more, really feel the dukkha of that moment, which is what needed to be done, of course, to see, to be able to see really closely and clearly the, the impermanent, selfless dukkha nature of it unsatisfactory nature of it. It doesn't last. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. So, in doing this practice, we hear of so many speak about realizing the strengths they they didn't know they had. So now, you know, going through that part of practice, um, I remember asking Upandita once, will I ever, not that time, but another time, will I ever experience this dukkha again? You know, the four horses pulling me apart? I asked him, will I ever experience this again? He said, no, you'll never experience this again. And then when I did experience it again, I said, <laughs> <laughs> these told that I would experience this again. He said, this is a different dukkha. <laughs> it's not the same. You know, of course, everything changes. Nothing is new, nothing is old, everything is new. So we realized, yes, there was more ability to face it. I wasn't in a puddle of tears. And I was able to say, just touch this. And then was able to, it became more, the terrain of that became more familiar. So I want to read you a story from a friend of ours, and she's given me permission to read this. And um, this is somebody who used to cook for our retreats when we had the one month retreats on Maui. And um, she went through something very difficult, a health uh, challenge. It was very, very difficult for her. And she had such openness and, uh, with her vulnerability to it. And so she is a great inspiration to me. Among others, I, I said, I'm going to call you if something happens to my life told somebody else that here, too, because she gave me, just her attitude was so great. So this was on that Karen bridge uh, site where people talk about what, they, what they're going through in a health um, challenge, so everybody can tune into that. So she first had this poem called The Guest House. I want to read this to you, this beautiful poem, too. She says, um, from Rumi, this, human, this being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He or she may be clearing you out for some new delight. Many of you may have known this poem already. So she says in response to that, in one week I'll be going to the hospital for surgery that will deprive me of about one-third of the organ responsible for allowing my body to receive the breath of life. The surgery will also be the means for determining whether I have a non-invasive versus an aggressive form of cancer growing in my lungs. The stakes are high. Rumi reminds me that all of this may be some kind of blessing with its own gifts to offer. My house feels swept clean. I am somehow feeling more fully alive with a life-threatening diagnosis right here in my face. I'm re-examining my relationship to every aspect of my life and asking questions. How does this serve me and all that is of value to me? What is of value to me anyway? I don't have all the answers, but the process has been enlivening, energizing, and sometimes fun. And so I plan to welcome my next guest honorably. So I have to say, these aren't just words that are written, you know, just to make a story. She really is like this. She really has this kind of courage and openness and vulnerability and And her smile is just kind of disarming, you know, her smile as she goes through, like, yeah, it hurts, but, you know, I still got my dog beside me, and I still can taste some things once in a while, little things like that, that she appreciates of life. So as we continue our own journey with more openness and honesty, we need all the strength possible, of course, you know, It's not that it gets easier so much as that we get stronger. That's what what, what we need to really remember. And sometimes it, it is really wonderful and blissful and we see the beauty of life even more. Of course, next to the pain of life. But sometimes it does get harder. So the fact of this practice is that we get stronger. We develop the skill sets that we need to face it, to respond wisely. So it's experiencing a clear view of how it actually is rather than overlaying our constant comments about how we think it should be, which is so draining. It's so kind of enervating. It's so just useless. Just thinking how it should be all the time. I love this um, quote by Agnes Au. She wrote this for the Shambhala Sun. It's about uh, how to practice when there's an unlayering or an exposing of uh, layers of pain in our practice, and uh, allowing us the opportunity to explore the inner life deeply. So she says it like it is. I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. I love the way she talks about that. I think in in some ways when our courage is really there, that's what we all want, in, in the wholesome sense of the word, want. That vividness of an unfiltered life, to really see it clearly, accept it all, without turning away or running away or striking out at it. To recognize it. So compassion supports us in this. And without doing this quiet inner investigation of clearly recognizing that inner landscape, we can never hope to have that vividness, that living a life that's really truthful. It's said that um, when we can do this, we can have a wonderful effect on the outer landscape of the world when we recognize the inner landscape for what it really is. His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about how we may not be able to change radically how it is in the outer world, but we have a good chance of changing our own hearts and minds. That's really where we have the chance. And when we can do that, or while we're doing it, when we can do what we do in connection with the outer world to help make those changes possible for others, then people really feel our strength when they know that we're working on ourselves as well. So as holiness says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, which has an infinite outreach in the world. So this is the terrain of uh, our inner life and what is possible as we grow in understanding our own inner terrain, we have a more of a true empathy for what's happening out there and then we can respond to the world with, with compassion. Empathy is about really being able to feel what others feel because we know that feeling for ourselves. And it's what helps us to respond. They say that compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. And so I always wondered what that meant. You know the quivering of the heart. What? So I thought to myself, I'm I'm just gonna watch how. What happens when I see suffering, and where do I feel it? What? And indeed, sometimes it's felt as kind of like your heart quivers when you see suffering, because maybe you know it feels sorrow sometimes, which can be lead to compassion. Sorrow isn't compassion, but it can lead to it, you know, when the heart gets stronger. Or we feel like we want to do something, it quivers, it feels like we want to take action. You know, you feel that there's energy going through you and you want to reach out and help. So it's kind of energy that's experiencing the outside inwardly and then experiencing that energy of wanting to lend a helping hand. Sometimes we feel the opposite. You know, we feel the opposite of compassion. The direct opposite is called cruelty. Because we want to strike out at what we don't understand or what we don't like. We want to just wipe it out. We want to hit back sometimes. I felt that when someone was cruel to a family member of mine, was physically cruel, I wanted to really strike out at that person. I wanted to... I didn't. I mean, I have enough restraint and I have enough of the precepts in me that I wouldn't do it, but I could see the mind wanting to strike out, wanting to hurt that person that hurt someone small in my life. And so, when I felt that cruelty in me, that wanting to strike out, but didn't, I knew that place in myself. And so I could empathize with that person. Didn't make what that person did right. It just meant that I know how that feels. And that's painful and sometimes we don't even know we feel that way and we, boom, we hit another person with our words or with our actions. So that's cruelty when you strike out and you you can know that in ourselves. That's the far enemy. It's called the far enemy because you can see it from afar. And when we see it in ourselves, when I saw it in myself at that moment, I remember that because this was a very hard moment in my life long time ago um, regarding uh, one of the young ones in my family. So, when I felt that cruelty and then I realized the connection between what I felt in my heart and what that person might have felt, not exactly the same, but similar, I realized in that connection it kind of softened my heart and I had a sense of empathy, compassion. I was with the suffering, my own and that person's. I was really with that suffering. So I felt that compassion. So for a few moments just softened my heart. I I remember that distinctly when uh, someone said, oh, that's the way that person was treated when that person was younger. Yeah. Oh, and I felt a lot of compassion softened me. So it requires us to stretch, to grow, to really know those places in ourselves with kindness and acceptance. One of my um, favorite Ways of describing this is from this excerpt from a poem by David White called Self Portrait. And he says, uh, It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in this world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. This is the love that's compassion. The terrain of compassion includes that far enemy of cruelty because it can go from When we face suffering, it can go from opening our hearts to wanting to strike out, to the whole other side of the terrain, which is called the near enemy. It's called the near enemy because it can seem like compassion, and that is despair, or helplessness, pity, or a kind of sorrow and grief that we wallow in, that we're drowning in. It seems like compassion because we feel so soft, but we're too soft. You know, it's just like we're, we're not of any use to ourselves or to another, because we're just drowning in the pain and the sorrow of ourselves or another person. There's no clarity or wisdom there. It's just uh, being caught in despair. So the near enemy, despair, or a kind of sorrow that you're lost in, the far enemy is cruelty, striking out at, or in any way with our words, with our opinions, with our you know strong viewpoints, with anger. So this is the terrain we're all experiencing when we're here. When we experience either side of the terrain of compassion, all the ways of cruelty to ourselves and to others, the judging mind, the angry mind, the mind that's um, self-righteous, um, so many ways, you know them as well as I do. And the other side of it, despair, pity for oneself or another, um, attachment. And all There's so many ways which we get caught. The terrain of our lives, just here, this is what we're looking at when we're here. Can we come back to kind of that middle ground of compassion? and know all those places from that place. So we need this skill set of compassion. The Venerable Nyanaponika of Sri Lanka, he was a great translator of the Buddha's teachings, he wrote uh, a lot about the Dharma and gave his own commentaries after he read and studied and practiced in, in his own way himself. So he wrote about compassion in this way. This is where compassion leads to. It cleanses and strengthens the mind and the heart. It awakens dormant potentials. It results in the spiritual transmutation of the personality. So it evolves us as human beings. So i just like to end with the simplicity of the, this poem that I read earlier. And may this be so for all of us. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. May it be so.